to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, May 12, 2019. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His play, God Shows Up, begins uh, opening night. Is it tomorrow, Peter? Is that the Yeah, 12th? yeah, yeah. yeah the All official right. opening is tomorrow. The official opening is uh, at the Actors' Temple on 47th Street. Mm-hmm. Uh, his columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Hello. I saw uh, that Lou Liberatore, who's in Peter's cast, uh, posted a photo of himself, I, I guess, uh, uh, rehearsing. So that was fun to see. Was that on Facebook or? Uh... Yeah, yeah. He was like on... sitting in a, it looked like he was sitting in a dressing room or something. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's, it's, it's all getting real when it shows up on social media. <laughs> right. <laughs> also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. Also, uh, this week you had your interview with Celia Keenan Bolger at the Drama Desk event. Uh, tell us, how'd that go? Oh, it went really well on Friday evening. Celia is nominated for the Tony Award and the Drama Desk Award and the Outer Critics Circle Award. And should win all three. (laughs) Ah, yes. Go on. I agree. And uh, looking looking over the Tony category um, uh, specifically, again, it, it looks like she has a really, really good chance. So that would be wonderful. Uh, but she's just great. I've known her for a while, and we talked about uh, a lot about To Kill a Mockingbird, of course, which is her, what she's nominated for. Her beautiful performance is Scout Finch. Um, but then we talked about the rest of her career a little bit, and uh, – Uh, One of the most interesting moments was something actually she brought up. I I was not going to because I hadn't asked her before and I didn't know if she wanted to discuss it. Uh, And I don't remember exactly how it came up, but uh, I'm not sure how many of our listeners know this, but she was the original Clara in The Light in the Piazza before the show came to Broadway. Uh, She she had worked on it for quite some time and did it out of town, and and then she was replaced by Kelly O'Hara. So she talked about that and – you know about how very how difficult it was at the time and but she also mentioned that, that the director of that was Bartlett Shear with whom she you know is now working in to kill a mockingbird so the, that obviously was not a bridge that was burned and sometimes things happen like that and that's showbiz uh but then um during the Q&A section after the the interview, someone uh, asked her specifically about that, uh, you know, what she did to get through what was a very difficult experience. And she said, uh, Celia said that one of her professors, one of her teachers um, once told her the key to success is the graceful execution of plan B. <laughs> and so she said uh, at the time, she said, I, I remembered that that he had said that and I'm not sure if I could process it then. But now I look back and, you know, I think there's a lot a lot of truth in that. And in fact, uh, not long after she uh, was uh, dismissed or whatever from the light of the piazza, she got 
her role in the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. So that all worked out. And um, and lots of actors have stories like that of great disappointments. Uh, so if you are in, in a situation like that, uh, do not lose heart. You know, just we know it's difficult, but stick with it. And you may end up nominated for three awards for the same performance in one, in one season. That is quite a story, Michael. That's, that's incredible. Did, did anybody, uh, we talked about this last time when you interviewed Santino, did anybody record this? Can we see it or listen to it anywhere? Do you know? Uh, I have a, um, a link to a, uh, to an article that has uh, photos and uh, a brief video excerpt. I'll send that to you. Oh, great. Excellent. I'll, I'll throw that up in the show notes. Great. All right. So uh, first up, the three of us got a chance to see King Lear over at the Court Theater. So, um, uh, Michael, you want to start us with King Lear? Sure, I can. I uh, was mostly surprised by my reaction to Glenda Jackson's performance, because um, as, I, as I think we mentioned last week, people, it seems, rarely agree on anything nowadays. <laughs> but one thing that almost everyone uh, uh, I've heard has said and read um, is that Jackson is great in the show, which is otherwise a, a very, very misguided and troubled production directed by Sam Gold, who it has been pointed out by many people in the past, including me, um, seems to do a very fine job with new material. But for some reason, whenever he's handed uh, older material or a classic, uh, uh, an established text, he feels the need to just really put his stamp on it and kind of, you know, bang that stamp in with a sledgehammer. Uh, so I would think that that this is certainly an example of that. This production seems to have um, – well, actually, though, oddly enough, this, this, this production, I would say, almost seems to have no concept, uh, no, no strong concept in terms of the, the set or anything like that. And one of the most annoying things about it is that every single person in it – seems to be in a different play. Uh, they are acting in, in very widely varying different styles. And even the accents um, are, are uh, all over the place, even, even within, uh, you know, individual families like the, <laughs> the Lear family. So I found that very distracting. It, it, it you just, you know, you, you, you just, never knew what was going to come out of somebody's mouth in terms of their their dialect or um, their speech patterns or whatever. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying everything needs to be done, certainly with a British accent. I'm certainly not saying that, but I think some consistency really helps. Um, but back to Glenda Jackson, I uh, uh, my feeling in this show was that she uh, seemed to be uh, a brilliant technician, which I think we all know, but it was all very surfacey. I would almost say she was doing an extremely high level of indicating, <laughs> an extremely high level of indicating rather than acting. I didn't think uh, 
there was any pathos in the role at all. That that seemed to be maybe a choice, something that she chose to downplay. Uh, I, I mean, yes, the anger part was fine, and the and the uh, outrage and the nobility and the uh, all of those emotions, but. Um, I was completely dry-eyed at the end of the play. I, I did not feel the relationship between Lear and Cordelia or really between Lear and anyone else. Um, and it took me a while to, to, to figure out that that's what I thought was the problem. But that really is how I feel. I didn't think it was an issue um, last season, certainly, in Three Tall Women, but I, that's a very, very different type of character. So maybe that's why uh, – that's why. I mean, I know, obviously, uh, Miss Jackson chose to do King Lear because it's a great male role, and she has been very vocal about something with which I completely disagree, uh, that there aren't enough great female roles in the canon. Uh, but whatever, she she – felt uh, it very necessary and really wanted to do it. Uh, but I think she's miscast, maybe. Maybe she's just miscast as Lear because she doesn't have that kind of um, that kind of ability to portray honest emotion on stage in that way. Anyway, that's what I felt. I'm, I'm sure that many people disagree with me. And uh, the rest of the cast, as I say, were we're really, really all over the place. And there is one thing I want to bring up, actually, without mentioning the actor's name. But first, I have a question for, for you guys. Um, I have absolutely no ability to play baseball. Do you think that I should be allowed to play baseball for the New York Mets just because I really want to? Uh, well, uh, I, I guess the analogy really would be fair if indeed um, you had had some minor league experience. I mean, it's not as if um, she doesn't have experience. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm talking about someone else. Oh. What, yeah. I'm sorry. I should, I should clarify. There is an actor in this play, who I'm not going to name, who was also in Sam Gold's production of Othello, by the way. So Sam Gold must really like this actor. And this actor has such a severe speech impediment um, that he is not able to pronounce his S's clearly as a result that uh, as, at least as far as I'm concerned, a great many words are missed, uh, uh, specifically any word that has an S in it. And I just don't know if that is something that uh, – I, I don't understand the point of that. And I do uh, make the analogy of me not being able to hit a ball or catch one and being allowed to play for the New York Mets. Uh, who, by the way, could probably use you this season. <laughs> That's another story. Um, so and don't give know, up, well, Michael. Well, you notice I didn't say the Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> no, they won't take you. Anyway, uh, no, I certainly see a point. Uh, but there's no question that we're in an era where this is uh, certainly being uh, shown in theater. I, I find it most interesting that it doesn't seem to be an issue in film or TV that um, we are taking on uh, this issue and uh, dealing with it. So, yeah, I see a point. And sometimes I, I guess it's like everything else. It's, it's hit or miss. Sometimes it does work out and you don't even mind or notice. I mean, uh, Ali Stroker certainly is uh, somebody who isn't the traditional A to Annie. And yet uh, she's been acclaimed far and wide. So I oh, guess yeah, it's I'm, a case. No. But it's I'm case-by-case case basis, I guess. Oh, Go ahead. 
Sure, but I'm glad you brought her up because in my mind that's completely different because there's nothing about her that prevents her from performing that role as it's supposed to be. Uh, you know, it's it's her disability, if that's a word for it, uh, is almost unrelated to what is required for that role, which is not a dancing role. Uh, but here, I mean, you, you, you do need to be able to speak clearly so that people understand you. I just think that's something at a minimum. Uh, and, uh, and also in this same show, we have Russell Harvard, who yeah. is a deaf actor and who, right. um, basically doesn't speak throughout the entire evening and instead has his lines interpreted by Michael Arden, who right. is on stage with him. So that uh, that worked out to, for a fully satisfying portrayal of that role. So I don't think it was an issue there either. But if someone can't, uh, you know, I just I don't see the point. I think there are limits. And I guess my limits are set at different places that than Sam Gold's. Mm-hmm. So uh, I have to disagree with you on uh, – yeah, on Glenda Jackson. I really thought it was interesting and maybe this comes back to my take on shows that have been done a million ways from Sunday that uh, we need a fresh look at. Uh, and all, and you didn't you didn't mention Jean Howdyshell as as Earl of Gloucester uh, as well. That I thought that they both did an incredible job. The concept of uh, I think that Sam Gold was going for um, a, a, you know a an uh, aside from telling the story of of Lear, he was telling this story of. Uh, current day Trump and and the U and the fact that the set was all shrouded mm. in gold and and Cordelia uh, uh, and the fool character uh, made reference to it uh, <laughs> at least in the socks of Ru- uh, Ruth Wilson was wearing um, <laughs> and and I thought that Ruth Wilson oh my God uh, I agree. She, unbelievable I agree. and 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 that category how. how you know, can she win that category, and 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 what happens there? Uh, right, exactly. Yes, yeah, she was really wonderful, and I also have to single out John Douglas Thompson. Uh, he was, no, yeah, he he. You know, I mean, he's already his bona fides as a really great uh, classical actor are are well established, and he certainly didn't disappoint. But he uh, he and Ruth Wilson, well, and Jane Howdy Shell, uh, they were all excellent. Uh, I even liked Pedro Pascal um, mm. uh, as Edmund, but he. Uh, but again, uh, I was distracted by the the great variance in the accents. Maybe that wasn't an, as much of an issue for you. No, uh, because I sort of felt that it was. Uh, other than the text specifying location, I you know I felt that the set and the and the acting choices made didn't put us in any time or any place agreed uh and so the the accents didn't also uh tie me back to any time or place as well so gotcha yeah uh and coming in at was it three and a half hours or something yes. like that close to four hours three three forty five uh it flew by for me which uh i oh. I, I, you know, it didn't fly fly for you. <laughs> no. no, and 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 on that note, um, 
for the life of me, I cannot understand the way the way they're doing it. Um, act one is two hours. Hmm. And then there's a, an interval of 20 minutes, 15 to 20 minutes. And then act two is only about an hour and I think an hour and 15, an hour and 10. Why they didn't move the intermission earlier is beyond me, especially since there's the perfect place for it. I've seen several productions of Lear done in two acts. And when they do it in two acts, they take the intermission right after the scene where Lear and his people are thrown out into the storm. Yeah. And that's now, I thought perfect... that I thought there was going to be a break there. You mean three acts or uh, or three breaks or uh, three sections? No, when I've seen it in when I've seen it in two acts, they they do one intermission. Oh, so the second act right. is very long instead of the first act being very well, long. Well, well, it's it's no, but they're more equal. They're you know, it's like uh, that would have been like 20 minutes earlier, 15. Ah, so it would have it certainly would have been closer. Uh to being equal length for the both of the acts. All right. So, uh, Lear, were you surprised that Glenda Jackson didn't get a nomination? Yeah, I certainly was. Michael, well, you I, weren't. I'm not, but I think aside from my uh, my problems with her performance, I, I just I just think it is timing. Um, you know, it's it was so special and such an event when she came back last year and and yes. mm-hmm. and people you know and maybe it's not right but that's the way people's minds oh, absolutely work. true sure. yeah yeah i think so yeah. oh sure. and one last thing i you know i was <laughs> i have never seen a, a shakespeare production where the music continued for huge amounts of time under the dialogue oh yeah. the the yeah. i was gonna say i'm glad you brought that up because i forgot about that i and also i felt that the music was too loud at times that I, the yes. i I, yes. could, I missed a lot of uh a, a lot of what the actors were saving saying because the music was so loud it was beautiful and it was a quite talented group of people but certainly uh it, it was too loud at points for me well, it's Philip Glass, so I guess they wanted to make it loud because it's Philip Glass, and they oh, paid him a lot yeah. of money. But uh, yeah. you know. <laughs> but I, you know, I just to me, it's just one aspect of the wrongheadedness of this production. So uh, I've had a handful of uh, of discussions uh, in the last week or so um, uh, about. Uh, Mockingbird not getting best play nomination and and uh, people have come back to a a a collective revolt against Scott Rudin. Uh, do you, uh, do you think that maybe there was a, a some sort of revolt against Rudin in at least the Mockingbird thing? I think that's possible, but I also think a lot of it is the title. And I didn't we discuss this last week, or maybe yeah. not. Uh, you know, there, there was the whole controversy over, well, first of all, with the estate of Harper Lee, uh, whether the play was going to be done at all, because it was felt that uh, initially they felt that Aaron Sorkin's adaptation strayed too far from the original. And uh, by the way, Celia and I uh, also discussed this at the Drama Desk event the other night. She had some interesting thoughts on that. But, um, but as we know, uh, theoretically – Technically, the official title of this play is now Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, something which Peter objected Mm. to from the beginning, and I completely Mm. agree. But that was obviously for uh, rights issues. You know, I mean, that was part of the negotiation. Mm. Uh, But I think the result of that is that um, in the minds of some people, even though 
uh, we all agree. I think we all agree that Aaron Sorkin has rewritten, uh, you know, vastly and and made many, many, many changes uh, to the dialogue and the the conception of the characters, et cetera, et cetera. It's still called Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. So in some people's minds, it may be viewed not as a new play. Uh, and so I think that that may be uh, in addition to what you mentioned earlier, uh, I suppose that that is what happened. So Scott Rudin is represented in, in new shows this season with The Ferryman, The Waverly Galley, To Kill a Mockingbird, King Lear, Hillary and Clinton, and Gary is equal to Titus Andronicus. I feel as though that each one of those shows have been slighted in some way or another through the Tony nominations. Uh, and so I, I wonder if there is actually some sort of uh, uh, some sort of pushback on Scott Rudin uh, sure. about this, and that you know, people like uh, Glenda Jackson, Nathan Lane are getting uh, are, are getting the brunt of it. <laughs> but we uh, will. That said, yeah. that said, um, Rudin is handling it with grace. Um, oh yeah, he, yeah, yeah. He did make. Uh, a statement uh, congratulating everybody else. So, uh, so that was pretty nice. You know, he must have uh, known about uh, uh, Celia Keenan Bolger's advisor there. Ah, right, Grace, right. <laughs> Did he go to Michigan? <laughs> That's a good point. Right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, uh, next up, uh, we got a chance to go to see Gary, a uh, sequel to Titus Andronicus. Um, uh, Peter, I don't. Recall, oh, I did. You I did, did already. Yeah. You did already yeah. talk about that. But Michael and I also saw it. So, Michael, why don't you get us started on Gary? Um, yeah, sure. I uh, well, here again, this is a play that that uh, I have heard many people say. Well, you either love it or hate it. Um, but I guess I was kind of <laughs> um, in the middle, and and uh, much to my amazement, I uh, my main reaction to it was that it was kind of incredibly boring. Um, because there's this setup of these servants, uh, you know, having to clean up the mess, uh, both literally and metaphorically after this tremendous amount of carnage that happens in Titus Andronicus. And, um, first of all, I was very surprised. Um, it's only, well, for the most part until the end of the play, it's only three characters. And, uh, I, I can't, I guess I can't say more about that because it's considered a spoiler uh, to the point where there's an insert in your playbill that you don't get to the end of the show because uh, they don't want to give away what they think is a spoiler. So I won't say more about that. But yes, for the bulk of the play, um, it is uh, <laughs> these three characters, Julie White as Carol, Nathan Lane as Gary, and Christine Nielsen as Janice. Um, but not only that um, – uh, Julie White is in it a lot less than Nathan Lane and Christine Nielsen. So a tremendous amount of the play is just this back and forth between Nathan Lane and Christine Nielsen as they, you know, clean up the carnage and deal with the, these, this pile of bodies on the stage. Um, and I just uh, I mean, I like the theme of the play. And I, I thought that the idea sounded uh, interesting and maybe really funny when I first heard about it, uh, kind of uh, along the lines of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, where uh, a, a modern day playwright takes minor characters from a classic and writes a play around them. Uh, 
So uh, I thought that could be interesting and funny. And the fact that the characters are called Gary and Janice, <laughs> you know, uh, it seemed really amusing to me. But I, I just don't think that it's sustained. And what I felt was I was seeing Nathan Lane and Christine Nielsen do the kind of comic uh, business and shtick, if if you will, that I've seen them do brilliantly many times before, just doing it all again and again, uh, but only dealing with each other for the most part. And then when Julie White did come in, um, she, um, I, uh, you know, I think she is very talented. And I, I uh, have to say, though, that I, uh, that I do think she has this issue where her voice becomes incredibly strident and also scratchy when she raises her volume. And in this case, that was a really big issue because she screamed almost every one of her lines. Um, For that matter, I felt that that was pretty much largely the case with Nathan Lane and Christy Nielsen, but uh, at least they don't have that, that stridency issue. So it wasn't as incredibly difficult and tiring to listen to them as it was to Julie White. I, I started to kind of recoil every time she came on stage because I just did not want her to start screaming in. And, um, you know, the, the lines she's screaming are by Taylor Mack. Uh, many of the uh, discussions are f- interesting on a philosophical level, you know, um, uh, Talk about uh, the distribution of power and and uh, and uh, and wealth and how the you know the the haves and the have-nots deal with each other and how people always have to clean up other people's messes and really lots of other phys- philosophical issues. I found much of it interesting, but I I actually think that this would have been a a much better play if only. It had had one or two more characters because it really got tiring for me uh, to have it be mostly those two people and then interrupted by, you know, occasionally by the other one who just came in and started screaming. So I had largely very negative feelings to this play. But but again, mostly I would say uh, boring. It didn't make me angry or uh, I, I didn't think it was um, I mean, I didn't hate it. Uh I, I just felt like it was a waste of time. And also, uh, I don't know exactly what this means, but I think it should not have been on Broadway. I think it's too special, <laughs> too special for Broadway. And of course, would never have been if they hadn't gotten people like, well, primarily Nathan Lane, but also Christine Nielsen and Julie White, who are all, uh, you know, very well established. Michael, uh, you hit the nail on the head for me. I have one sentence for reviewing this show. Uh, Br- Broadway is not the right place for experimental theater. Yeah, I mean, uh, and and and, and I would but, I would have loved to seen it off Broadway, but it doesn't need to be on Broadway. And I, I'm not sure why it wasn't down at the Public, uh, certainly, or you know, some other major off Broadway space. But it it didn't need to be a Broadway show. And I enjoyed the performances, and I was saying that. You know, what was the impetus for, uh, mm. you know, who's, who read the script and said this needs to be a Broadway show? I don't know. Uh, but it uh, also, 
I mean, you know, and this seems like an ideal thing where if they thought they wanted to bring it to Broadway, it might have been really smart to start off Broadway or somewhere else and see what the reaction was and then bring it in. Of course, you know, many people are saying they think it's admirable, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and I suppose in theory it is admirable. But if something, you know, if it fails, uh, I guess, at the box office and with the critics, then then maybe it was not a good idea ultimately. So I'm not sure. I, you know, I, I, I don't know if the jury's still out. I, have, I haven't been checking the grosses. All right. So uh, that is Gary's sequel to Titus Andronicus, and it is playing through August 4th. And uh, after August 4th, do we think that maybe it'll cross the pond to go to London? Peter, do you think so? <laughs> uh, very good segue. Yes. Uh, what James is referring to is that I spent some time in London uh, this week and um, <clears throat> had a pretty good time of it, I'll tell you. Um, of course, one of the problems of going to London today is that so much of it is Broadway. Uh, <laughs> so many of the shows are exactly what you could see here. Wicked, The Lion King, Aladdin, though Aladdin is... Um, closing pretty soon but still um <laughs> when you come right down to it there's much broadway on the west end so um so finding shows that i hadn't seen or shows i wanted to see again for one reason or another uh, was uh, i'd want to say challenging because that makes it sound <laughs> like uh, an onerous thing but no anyway um so i went to fiddler on the roof and you might say, well, come on, you know, I mean, you've seen Fiddler. In fact, Fiddler's the show I've seen more than any other. This is my 21st um, visit to Fiddler. Um, <clears throat> and, of course, I saw it twice earlier this season because of uh, the Yiddish production. that's so wonderful. Now it's stage uh, 42. But uh, because I write a column every week for Music Theater International, it's entirely possible that I'm going to see something markedly different. I can say to people there, hey, when you do Fiddler, you might consider doing this. Uh, and so I was tremendously impressed by Trevor Nunn's production, tremendously. Um, it, it, it was immersive in the sense that the entire theater... Uh, the set was built to look like Anatevka. It was technically a unit set, <clears throat> but um, little villages, it sort of looked like Santa's village, only a little more drab, of course, because we're talking about Anatevka. But Trevor Dunn really um, examined every line um, to stress the little details. Uh, when the mamas talk about um, making a quiet home in tradition, they actually sung quietly. So uh, the rabbi entered from the back of the house, too, during tradition, as if to establish that he's the town's most esteemed character. So, uh, so that was pretty impressive. Um, when the, in Matchmaker, I don't know if I've ever seen this before. It looked reasonably familiar, but in Matchmaker, when the girls were uh, doing their household chores, uh, they were folding a sheet, and suddenly they put it over their heads to make it look like a chuppah um, as they were imagining their weddings, which I thought was um, which I thought was really good. I thought it was very effective when Tevya was singing, If I Were a Rich Man, you know how he does those shaking arm things? Suddenly he pulled back as if in pain. Yeah, this guy's been working hard all day. I thought that was terrific, too. You know, I mean, really, that makes sense, you know? So... Um, <laughs> When Model said a poor tailor is entitled to some happiness to Tevya, I mean, he roared it out. And because there's a lot of stuff about Te um, Model becoming a man. And, um, and that certainly uh, was very effective there to see him becoming a man at that moment in time. So, um, so I like that a lot. And um, when the famous moment comes in the wedding, when... Um, when Perchik says, uh, why don't, uh, let's have men and women dancing, uh, they, 
what I've always seen is they go to the rabbi who opens up his Bible and looks and says he can find nothing. And so therefore everybody starts dancing here. He didn't have the Bible. He just immediately said, no, it's not in the, it's not in the Bible. Yeah, you can do it. Um, making him seem a little smarter. And yet we have to wonder why he hasn't brought it up before. But um, um, the famous first stack curtain, which have you looks up at God and gestures and say, come on, did this really have to happen today? did it of all days you know you couldn't give my daughter a good wedding it doesn't end with that um it ends with um uh Fietka and uh, kava looking at each other indicating that they are falling in love and the problems they're going to have as a result of this so that you know all these companies that license these shows say you can, you can interpret but you can't change any words and that's what happened here no words were changed but nevertheless we did end with that image um for the first act and that was um <clears throat> good so i like that a lot um Kabbalah eschewed the usual um, scene of um, Kava dancing in the background as a little girl. Here it was Tevye Solo, and he made the most of it. Um, so uh, it was a terrific production. Uh, Judy Kuhn, by the way, was uh, Golda, and she was quite wonderful. Um, and especially at the end, when um, they're talking about going to America and um, we'll have the children with us, usually Golda says, not all with wistfulness, as if to say, Kava won't be with us. But here she said, not all, as if to say, I don't agree with you. I don't see why we have to banish Kava because she married a Gentile. Oh, so interesting. Of, That's um, really interesting. Yeah, a lot of good details, I'm telling you. You know, So um, I, I can't imagine we'll see it here, considering we have this uh, very much acclaimed production of Fiddler. But, um, but I'm very glad I attended. So that was uh, really quite special. All right. Uh, so uh, we also had in the list here All About Eve. What's uh, happening with the, this the Gillian Anderson production? Yeah, it is. Um, and boy, a tough ticket. Um, I um, had to buy standing room, and I'm not sorry I did. Uh, I will say that um, <laughs> a lot of liberties were taken because this is Ivo Van Hove, so uh, what do you expect? Um, uh, all I could think of was Emery would not be pleased. Now, Emery is the character in Boys in the Band, and as Michael told us in that play, <laughs> Emery could recite the screenplay verbatim of All About Eve. You know, so um, And so he might have taken a lot of... Uh, uh, had a lot of problems with what uh, went on here. One of the things, but in a way, it was more realistic. Um, uh, uh, Ivan Verhove sort of painted himself into a corner in a very strange way because Margot in this show was much more brittle, much more jaded, much more uh, suspicious from the first moment of, of Eve. Uh, she didn't trust her. And yet, because she was so brittle and jaded, we didn't much like her. I came away really appreciating Betty Davis's performance in the movie because she walked that line wonderfully. Um, the scene where the famous scene where uh, she comes on stage and uh, 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 Margot comes on stage and sees that Eve has uh, her dress, um, uh, Margot's dress, and is bowing as if she's uh, just played the role uh, in the movie. Uh, Margot is bemused that this is happening here. Uh, Jillian Anderson stalked her, quietly tiptoed up to, and then right behind her said, Eve, you know, and whoa, you know, that was a startling moment. Um, so um, that, that was uh, 
Well, you know, I, I understand you want to do something different to be putting on stage. You really should do that. But it didn't make us care for um, Margo as a human being. Ann Baxter uh, in the movie almost breathes her lines. Here, Eve was more savvy. And I think that was uh, a good idea. Addison DeWitt, though, I thought was a, a big mistake. He wasn't urbane and lacked that dry martini style that got George Sanders an Oscar. Instead, uh, this guy was too down to earth, uh, too down to earth, really, uh, almost a avuncular. Um, and uh, this made his brass tack speech to Eve uh, seemingly come out of nowhere at, at, at the end of the show. A real disaster, I thought, was Karen, because it's established in the movie that she's a, a graduate from Radcliffe. Well, this lady was no Cliffy, let me tell you. I mean, um, she was a combination of Rose Hovick and Rosie Bryce. She was very, very, talk about down to earth. She even looked like Dame Edna a little. And, um, <clears throat> and so as a result, she didn't have the class that we got from Celeste Holmes. So that was um, disappointing. The stage was split horizontally. Uh, the bottom of the stage, of course, is where the actors performed. Above were videos. Some of them were showing the action that was going on right then and there, but on a larger screen. Sometimes they showed you what was going on in the famous party scene, the fasten your seatbelts, it's going to be a bumpy night scene. There was, um, uh, you saw the guests in the other room while uh, the principals were playing their scene together. And most interesting to me was when um, they showed simply four martini glasses uh, empty on the screen while Margot was really acting astonishingly drunk <clears throat> to indicate that she had drunk a great deal. <clears throat> so um, uh, definitely worth seeing. A lot of new uh, lines. There was a good joke involving a bra. Um, <clears throat> there was also uh, lines that weren't so terrific, like Margot tells time as good as well as a halibut does, you know, that type of thing. One thing that does happen in the video uh, was that, um, you know, the famous backstage uh, mirror that you always see with the the, the uh, vertical lights on each side, light bulbs on each side. So they had Margot peering into it, and she doesn't like the way she looks. I mean, she's past her prime, and she knows it. And through CGI, they age her, so she's looking at her future where she's gray and wrinkled and all that kind of stuff. Well, you do see that later when a Eve looks into the mirror, and uh, she likes the way she looks. And later, of course, Phoebe, who comes in at the end of the movie, looks younger still. So uh, she looks into the mirror and her future. So, um, so that was good. So, um, oh, Bill, Bill, yeah, the actor uh, didn't have very much um, substance to him. He, he was very callow. Um, and the age difference between him and Margot seemed greater than it did between uh, Betty Davis and um, Gary Merrill. So it was also confusing as to when this play was taking place. It seemed like it was taking place now. And by the way, Margot was 50 in this version, not 40. Um, but there was a line about send the script back to the Guild, which is a line from the original uh, movie. But the Guild is the theater guild, which hasn't produced in literally uh, more than 50 years. So, um, <laughs> so yeah. Oh, uh, Miss Caswell, of course. We have to talk about Miss Caswell. Um, that's Marilyn Monroe's part. And... Um, here, she was uh, uh, she could have been Eve. I mean, she was that type of actress. And so you didn't have the famous line about the Copacabana, which I thought might have been because it was updated, even though there is a Copacabana, but it's it's not um, very much in the public consciousness. Um, and um, 
that that famous line about the butler where, where George Sanders says you have a point, an idiotic point, that wasn't in there either. So um, I, as I say, I don't think Emery would have really uh, approved of the show. Um, definitely uh, uh, worth seeing, but Ivo Van Hove uh, season it. So I wasn't sorry I attended, but uh, <laughs> I did have to um, question a few choices and um, – but, you know, will we see it here? I dare say we will. I would think there's enough interest in this property that we're going to see it here. Of course, um, having uh, Lily James, by the way, was the um, played Eve, and she's uh, got a nice reputation and uh, track record, too. So um, I suspect we will see it here. All right. Um, you saw uh, what was Ross Michon? Ross Michon at the Duke. <laughs> Well, this is a Nipson play from way back when, and um, it uh, played uh, on Broadway during the 1903-1904 season. So we're talking about a long time ago, and it was certainly written before that. But um, wow, wow. (laughs) You wouldn't think it was more than 100 years old because there's all sorts of talks about politics and what uh, deals have to be made and what's kept from the public and all that kind of business. And uh, if you... uh, uh, if, if you do what I say, uh, I'll make you editor of my newspaper, um, and then you'll have the power to create whoever you want and, um, as uh, a candidate, all that type of talk. Um, also, there was uh, an amazing revelation towards the end about um, incest, because um, uh, the young woman in the play, Rebecca, Rebecca West, by the way, is her name, which is kind of funny, because, of course, Rebecca West became, a woman by that name became a famous novelist. But anyway, Rebecca West is was so grateful to the man who took her in so grateful to the man who took her in when she had no other options her mother uh, had died and she didn't know who her father was and as it turned out the man who took her in was her father but he did wind up sleeping with her and she did it because of course he was so good to her and now she finds out that uh what's going on well the other part of the play too is the fact that um a, a, a pastor who was married um had his wife commit suicide and he finds out that rebecca was not um, irrelevant to the, her committing suicide. So um, there's a terrific image at the end of the play um, that involves the fact that uh, it, it's a metaphor. No, it's <laughs> what is it? Uh, it's a good way of showing that two people have died. Let me put it that way. Um, there's a quick line in the play earlier that if you do, if you miss it, you won't understand what's happening at the end. But I don't think you'll miss it. Because I really do believe this is a powerful, powerful production. And it's a play I had never seen. Uh, it's rarely done. But this is one that should come over because it has a lot to say in the Trump era. Hmm. And then the Twilight Zone you saw? Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, you, you assume that what this is going to be is you're going to see episodes from the famous TV series one after the other. The famous one where the lady is wrapped in bandages and they take them off and because she's so ugly and she's actually beautiful by our standards, but not by um, that society's standards uh, where they look terrible to us, but they look good to each other. So uh, when I was a kid, I'm telling you that I had nightmares of that one for a good six months or so. Um, so that's one episode that's you know reasonably famous. Um, the one where the the bus gets stranded and there were supposedly six people on the bus, but now there are seven people uh, in the uh, uh, 
inn that they've uh, come to, and um, also there's been some sort of um, interplanetary UFO uh, landing. So is one of those seven people from another planet? Um, so you may, re- if if you've seen the Twilight Zone um, at all, you've you've seen these episodes. Well, what they did, it was sort of like they took all the episodes on film, chopped them up, threw them in the air, then spliced them together without paying attention to what um, the, the, the um, thrust was of each show. So you got little bits and pieces of the, um, the series. And, um, and I really realized um, by the end of the show what a terrific idea this was because what happened was they did one episode in full. And whoa, was it powerful after seeing little bits and pieces. They, it, it was like, we, we're reminding you of the other episodes, but this is the one we want to stress. Which one, and Peter? It's the one where the guy has built the fallout shelter. And, um, and, he's, uh, and there's an emergency. Uh, Connell Rad says that um, the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming or whatever. And so he and his family are going into the fallout shelter. And uh, all the other neighbors come and say, um, look, uh, can we be in the shelter uh, with you? No, uh, we won't take up any room. We'll sleep on top of each. No, no. I warned you about this. I told you this was going to happen. I told you to build your own fallout shelters and you didn't. And so now you have to pay the price. So so all these neighbors are there and it comes up that one of the neighbors um, is accused of not being worthy of being in the fallout shelter because he isn't. Uh, a, a Native American, I don't mean Indian, what I mean is he wasn't born here, he was an immigrant. And he says, well, I've studied, I've become a U.S. citizen, I know more about the Constitution than you do, which is probably true. Um, then there's a black couple, and um, because the guy who's accusing the immigrant of not being worthy says, um, my, uh, my uh, people have been here since uh, 1850, whatever. And uh, the, the black guy says, well, my people came over in a slave ship in 1619. You know, and so, so there's all this stuff that goes on, um, which is really quite timely and quite potent. Well, what happens is it was a false alarm. And so now these people have to live with each other, knowing how mm. they really feel about each other. Right. Pretty good. Pretty good indeed. You know, they, they waited to pack the wallop. And so, uh, so I thought that was extraordinarily effective. And uh, you also saw Kelsey Grammer in the Man of La Mancha revival? Yeah, um, this didn't get good reviews. Now, um, frankly, I'm not a fan of Man of La Mancha. In fact, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that people uh, who know me when I say, and I saw Man of La Mancha, they say, what do you mean you want to see Man of La Mancha? You hate Man of La Mancha. Um, actually, I like the music very much. I decided after this, I've got to find one of those Percy Faith type albums where they used to play music and um, leave it alone, uh, no lyrics at all, because I don't think the lyrics are any good. And I am totally flummoxed by the, uh, the, the book. I, I think the book is... Um, Utterly ridiculous. Look, I'm a very optimistic person and um, always have been, always will be, I'm sure. However, um, I think John Quixote goes over the brink of being optimistic and he comes across as senile rather than optimistic. I mean, he, he looks at a barber's bowl and says it's a golden helmet. Why is that necessary? Um, when he wants to be dubbed a knight, he's thrilled to be called the knight of the woeful countenance. Well, I, that seems like a, a reasonably um, close to an insult. So, so I, I just think he's uh, – it's impossible for me to look at him and not think he's demented. Funny to use the word impossible in conjunction with uh, Man of La Mancha, isn't it? Anyway, um, <clears throat> so 
I, <laughs> at one point when Kelsey Grammer was singing, <clears throat> when he was flat, I winced. Um, another time, I actually yelled out, my God, at, at a note he missed uh, so poorly that he <laughs> turned around and see what happened. I mean, I just couldn't uh, do it. And um, so, so uh, not so hot in, in the singing category. Did the job. I will tell you that audience was thrilled to be in the same room with Frazier. They didn't care. They were just so happy. Um, standing ovation, uh, uh, heightened applause when he came out. Um, the Aldonza was pretty good. Um, and uh, But again, you know, uh, this show never has worked for me. And you might say, why do you go all the time? You know, I mean, this is my, I think, my ninth production. Um, I'm, I'm always willing to see something again and again and again to see if I can finally see what other people see in it. And um, it just didn't happen. And, you know, the other thing, too, the other thing, too, is that, again, there wasn't that much for me to see. You know, so, I mean, that's one of the reasons I wound up at La Mancha as well. I'm like that with olives. People keep telling me how good they are. And I keep trying them, and it never makes it. Um, which Aldanza did you see? I see on the English National Opera's website that no there's idea. a few Aldanzas. Okay. <laughs> I have no idea. I don't buy playbills over there. Um, I just ah, that's through, right. Um, yeah. You know, so uh, I guess I'm just too uh, stingy to do it. But um, so I don't know which one I saw. <laughs> she was fine, though. Let's hope they're both as good. Uh, and you also saw Amor? Amour, yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny. When Amour opened on Broadway, uh, I noticed that um, Jeremy Sams, the lyricist, uh, rhymed wife and life seven times. And I mentioned that in my review, and he actually wrote me uh, an email saying, I, I don't know anybody who does this, who counts. I mean, I think that's um, really lousy of you. Um, well, the thing is, um, I hope, I don't remember the review at all, but I hope that I really did stress that his lyrics are terrific. There's one that really was so clever, and I'll tell you what it is. Um, there's uh, our leading character um, has come to know a prostitute, and um, she's been waiting for him to uh, give her business, and he hasn't done it. Finally, he sings a song called I'm Gonna Take the Plunge. And at one point, he sings, um, I'm gonna take the P L U N. And then she interrupts and says, Jesus Christ, it's about time. Now, that's really <laughs> clever. I mean, for him to notice the G in terms of Jesus, which after all is a J-E. So, so um, a terrific little production at the Cherry Cross Theater. This is a Fringe show. Um, and um, 262-seat theater. Um, pretty full uh, Friday night, I'll grant you. And um, delightfully directed. Now, the whole thing is about a guy who can walk through walls. And in the original production, they had this elaborate scenery where, indeed, Malcolm Getz did walk through walls. Well, not here. So as a result, the actors had to become the wall that he walked through. And um, there were other tremendous touches as well. So I was very glad to get to see Amour. And um, for the first time since I saw it way back when, uh, what, 15 years ago, whatever it was. Um, and um, Michelle Grant's music is, is quite lovely. It, it always has been. Um, and uh, so it, it was nice to hear that as well. Very, very done, well done by a very game cast, and I was delighted to see that it was doing business. And, of course, Michelle Legrand died not long ago, so yeah. that's something that's happened between the original production and now. Sure. So that, that must have sure. lent an extra level of uh, wistfulness to Yeah, that was not lost on me, believe me. So, yeah. uh, sure. 
All right. Uh, we uh, uh, I, did you mention that Man of La Mancha was directed by Lonnie Price? No, I didn't. Um, so uh, indeed, it was, and um, I did hear it was going to be concerty, um, you know, like um, the Sunset Boulevard, and it wasn't. It was a fully staged production, and um, as I say, the reviews weren't good. But I really believe, reading the reviews, the uh, London critics were not criticizing Lonnie Price as much as they were criticizing, or the cast as much as they were criticizing Man of La Mancha. It seems to me. And again, you know, um, this may be what I want to read into it, but it seems to me that um, the the problems with the shows have uh, really caught up with me in La Mancha, and um, and that's what the issue is now. So a transfer possibly could be a po- an impossible dream. Yeah. All right. Uh, so that was six shows. Fiddler. Uh, Rossimer Home, All About Eve, The Twilight Zone, Man of La Mancha, Amour. Did you come up with the seventh? Yeah, it was a play called Amelia, uh, and a very good play indeed it was. Um, for years we've heard about Shakespeare's Dark Lady, and a lot of people have said that actually the Dark Lady was a man. Uh, this play said the Dark Lady was a lady. It was Amelia Bassano who was uh, a contemporary, and it dealt with the fact that she may very well have given Shakespeare a lot of his good ideas. And um, so... There was a lot of talk about feminism, a lot of talk about uh, women in the workplace, that type of stuff. But it was—it struck me as old wine and new bottles. Um, although we've heard about these issues time and time and time again, putting it in this context um, and seeing it done way uh, that these issues were existing back then. That uh, I mean, I was reminded of the movie *The Wife*. Um, the same thing where the. Uh, Glenn Close was really responsible for her husband's winning the uh, Nobel Prize. That type of thing. It was just set in Shakespeare's day, and um, I thought it was a really uh, good script. Uh, the, uh, uh, as a uh, um, reverse comment on what used to happen in Shakespeare's day, all the women played the men when they had to play men's roles. So uh, so that was uh, fun, too. I, it's a very, very good play. I don't know if we'll see it here because, again, it's um, it's of more interest, I would think, to people in Britain. But uh, because of the Shakespeare angle and because I've always felt that uh, something rotten didn't do better because people were afraid of Shakespeare here. They're not there. But on the other hand, of course, the issues dealing with feminism are are sad to say worldwide. So I was very glad I got to see it. You know, it's too bad. I was just thinking, uh, I agree with you about many of the flaws in Man of La Mancha, and it's too bad because, aside from everything else, I think the Aldonza character is such a wonderful character. I agree uh, with that. And, and, you know, especially today in terms of female empowerment, you know, a woman who's in, like, really kind of awful, desperate circumstances and is uh, just trying to take responsibility for herself and is made to see herself in a, in a different light because of the way that uh, Quixote looks at her and realize her self-worth. I, you know, I mean, I think there's a lot there and it's a very powerful character. I agree with that. Um, but I don't think we have to sugarcoat the fact that she has lived this life and he's just blind to what, what she has done. It's oh, nice no, that, I, no, I agree. I, agree. you know, so, so <laughs> anyway, so, Michael, maybe uh, perhaps that'll be the th- next thing that Glenda Jackson takes on? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But you know what? I would have loved to see uh, love to see Glenda Jackson in. I mean, you know, she has talked a lot about that there aren't enough great female roles. And, of course, there are fewer roles for um, really elderly actors in either sex. But um, 
can you imagine her in the visit? Yeah. Oh, yeah. What is that yeah. be just amazing? Yeah. I would love to see that. Okay, so uh, we'll jump from London back to this side of the pond where we will talk about a play that came from the other side of the pond with an American cast now. Of course, I'm talking about The Ferryman. Michael got back to visit it uh, down to the Jacobs. So, Michael, tell us uh, about your second visit to The Ferryman. Yeah, I won't say much. I will say if you've seen it with the original cast, you should um, definitely see it again with the new cast. And if you've not seen it at all, then absolutely uh, you should go and not think for a minute that you've, uh, you know, that it's any that it's second rate in any way because it's not the original cast. Um, this I actually enjoyed it more um, the second time. I think though that's uh, mostly because of the way the play is written. It has a lot of characters in it. And the first act, uh, or much of the first act, I would say, um, is a a lot of sort of exposition and also establishing the uh, character relationships. Uh, One thing I'm surprised at is the the playbill uh, gives the names of the characters, but it does not specify the uh, the familial relationships between the characters in this very large extended family. Uh, well, it's mostly in one extended family and then uh, some friends of theirs who are also part of a separate family uh, and then uh, assorted other characters. Uh, but actually, the uh, I received the script, um, the you know, the the published script of the Fairy Man by Jez Butterworth in the mail recently uh, because it's nominated for several drama desk awards and i noticed that there um at the at the beginning it does specify how each person is related to each other um i i think that would have been really helpful for the playbill and i'm not sure why they didn't include it i I mean it would have gotten a little crowded but i'm sure there's a way they could have fit it in so that's something that uh that i think is a little disappointing but having only seen the play once before and and not read it uh since then or, or or anything like that um just the one exposure to it made it much easier for me the second time to uh you know to comprehend how each person was related to each other uh, as you're having all of these characters thrown at you in in a very short period at act one. Um, So I think that's the main reason why I liked it much better the second time. And I, I do think it's, beautifully written by Jez Butterworth and expertly directed by Sam Mendes. And the, uh, the new people are, I would say, you know, as far as I could tell, very much equal to the originals in terms of incredible talent. I was so looking forward to see Brian Darcy James as Quinn Carney. Um, one of the first times I ever saw Brian Darcy James was in a solo show in which he had done an Irish accent. So it was not a surprise to me that he was so brilliant at that. And uh, I think maybe this is the first time I've seen him and heard him do that since then. But he seemed 100 percent authentic. And uh, every new person is just doing a really good job. Jack DeFalco, who I had tremendous problems with in Tort Song, uh, very good, very good as Shane Corcoran. And someone who um, 
just continually astounds is Shuler Hensley, who's uh, playing now playing the role of Tom Kettle, the the one Brit, uh, the one Englishman in the in the cast. Um, I think Shuler Hensley is someone who I've loved in every single role he has ever played. But every time I see him, I think, well, you know, uh, we're probably not going to see him that much uh, in the future because he's uh, he's you would think he would be somewhat hard to cast because he's a huge guy. And, uh, you know, uh, I mean, he has to be in the right role. But he, (laughs) you know, he seems to have found uh, steady work and i'm so happy he he's definitely been acknowledged as one of our best actors and i i you know this it would be worth it to see this cast of the ferryman if only for him but everyone else is really really great fred applegate emily burgle um holly fane if you know the flanagan is still in it um and uh, also still in it is uh, oh yeah I'm sorry yeah she 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 is continuing from the original cast uh, Anne McDonough uh, Julia Nightingale Brooklyn Shuck uh, uh, oh and Colin Kelly Sordelay it was really nice uh, to see him back on stage uh, he uh, got many fans for his performance in the regrettably short-lived The Last Ship. Um, but here he is playing James Joseph, J.J. Carney, and doing a really, really great job of it. Um, I, I would really pull this, put this show very high on my list. Uh, many, many people have remarked that this season, uh, generally speaking, has been much better for new plays and play revivals than uh, musicals, and certainly, certainly much better than musical revivals. Um, and I completely agree with that, and The Ferryman is a stellar example of that. All right. So there is The Ferryman, which is going to can you continue through July 7th. So uh, as Michael said, if you haven't seen it yet, you can see it for the next couple of months. Uh, Michael and I got a chance to see Broadway HD's production or Broadway HD's presentation of 42nd Street. Uh, Michael and I went to a live uh, – a a movie theater. I shouldn't say a live theater because it was a movie theater showing 42nd Street. So, uh, Michael, what did you think of 42nd Street? Well, I thought it was absolutely brilliantly done in terms of the – now, what word do you use? You don't say filming. Uh, and the videography. <laughs> uh, I, I the dir- think even though it's video, I still I still think that they f- still say film. All right. Well, well, the 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 way it was captured for mm-hmm. the for the screen, I thought was absolutely brilliant in terms of the camera angles and the editing, and uh, and all of that. I uh, thought the choreography uh, by. Our champion and Randy Skinner came across spectacularly well. Um, I had some uh, quibbles with some of the acting. Uh, I think mostly because this is such an American story, and I don't know if Brits have that in their bones. Uh, that said, I, I very, very much enjoyed Bonnie Langford as Dorothy Brock. I thought um, she was really great. And the... Uh, you know, uh, I oh, I think some of the changes that were made um, for that have been made for the show over the years, uh, some of them were, were you know have not been that 
that well advised. Um, I think those, a lot of those were made by Mark Bramble, who um, has also is also recently deceased. Um, so he is no longer around to supervise future productions of 42nd Street. But this one, um, I believe, was was very well received in London. And so it was uh, fodder for this really, really extremely exceptionally well done video version, uh, cinema cast version, whatever you want to call it. I, I do think, uh, you know what, and I've said this before, it, it amazes me that still at this point, uh, it has not been figured out how to do more uh, Broadway uh, and more American productions in this fashion, uh, and if I, I believe the short answer for that is uh, is because of the unions, union restrictions. Um, but instead, we're getting all of these these London versions and an occasional American American version Broadway production when they, I guess, somehow they're able to hammer out the the union issues. But uh, but isn't it? Don't you think it's kind of astounding that um, they haven't figured it out, yeah. given you know the given the revenue possibilities and, and the, you know, the archival value. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> so I, I, I wonder if that, you know, that will ever change. It's like, you know, I mean, I know it's tough, but come on people, yeah. you know, figure it out. It would, it would mean a, it would mean a massive shift in the way in which both SAG and Actors Equity view these type of things. Right. Uh, and well, so, yeah, I, <laughs> I don't think that's ever going to happen. I think wow. that there's there's not a there's not a benefit for equity to give in on this point. Well, there's been a lot of really bad stuff going on with equity later lately. So I guess I'm not surprised, and maybe we'll get into all that someday. But I just I think that they have some real, real major issues over there. All right. So uh, I have to second the things that uh, Michael said about the production value of 42nd Street. The uh, the filmmaking is wonderful. The, the production is really fun and exciting. I think they captured it very well and I encourage people to get over to Broadway HD and check out just yet another offering that they have there. It's very exciting. By the way, the sound quality I thought yeah. was super, superb. Absolutely, the mixing and the just the, the volume wasn't too loud. It was the loud enough. The tapping was just right. Yes, everything was uh. was great. I mean, it's it's a it's a, a exemplary TV cinema version of a Broadway, uh, well, <laughs> a London in this case production. If I sit too close to a stage and a show that's got a big tap number. I can guarantee I'm going to have a massive headache. And this was just perfect, the way that they balanced the sound. It was great. Michael, you also got over to uh, the tent next to City Field to see Cirque du Soleil's Luzia. Luzia? Do we know how they pronounce it? I I think it's Luzia. Luzia. So tell us about that. Well, I've always loved Cirque du Soleil. And uh, they, they seem to move around when they do shows in 
in the city. Uh, I think the first time I saw them was down in Battery Park. And then um, they were on Randall's Island at least one year, maybe yeah. maybe more than one year. And now they are in a, a tent just right next to a City Field. I mean, literally spitting distance. And this show is, I, I mean, I, I don't have a lot to say about it. I, I, it's thoroughly enjoyable, completely uh, what I would think of as the first thing I would think of, the first show I would think of uh, to recommend for family audiences. I think um, uh, a lot of people, uh, it seems to me, bring uh, sometimes tend to bring their children to Broadway shows, which are not necessarily appropriate. And I don't mean it in terms necessarily of vulgarity or anything like that, but just uh, maybe not um, – you know, maybe a little beyond uh, the comprehension of of, of young children, uh, but this one, it, you know, is it, just great as far as that. It, it's it's there's no uh, there's really no dialogue. At one point, one one of the women came out and spoke a little in Spanish, but you know that. For the most part, it's it's wonderful acrobatics and uh, tightrope walking, and there was an am- amazing contortionist, and there's this incredible um, uh, water is used a lot in this production. Uh, uh, one of Cirque du Soleil's most famous shows is called O, uh, which was, I think is still playing in Las Vegas, and that's done in a huge tank. But this was not in a tank. It was um, uh, at certain points during the show, tremendous amounts of water fall from the – well, from the flies basically. And uh, they do this incredible thing where they're able to sculpt the water <laughs> as it falls so that you see like sheets of water making various shapes like hearts and flowers and things like that. And I don't even I, – I can't even comprehend how they could do that. But that was great. And then they have a, a, a clown who I guess is the – the uh, David Shiner equivalent, um, and he was he was just wonderful. He had the audience in the palm of his hands, and uh, as I, I think I, I mentioned briefly that this contortionist who would just had us aghast. Uh, so I would say, um, the, you know, absolute first-rate family entertainment uh, for everyone, and the perfect length. Uh, you know, it's two short acts. And it's easy to get to because it is right next to City Field, so um, I, I highly recommend it. All right, so that is uh, the wrap of our reviews this morning. Although Michael, you did get over to see the Florida State University Senior Showcase, so uh, we don't typically cover this type of thing. But tell us uh, what you thought about that. Yeah, and I don't typically typically go to them because I'm not an agent. <laughs> but yeah. uh, I went to the Wagner College Showcase a couple of weeks ago because that's my alma mater. And it's so interesting. In that case, uh, they had 32, I believe, graduating seniors. So it was a real challenge uh, to put that program together and, and give everyone a showcase. Uh, Florida State University's musical theater graduates for 2019, uh, there are only seven of them. Uh, so they obviously had a lot more breathing room, uh, to do that. Actually, one of them is the son of a, a, a high, an old high school friend of mine. And mm-hmm. so we were talking and he said, um, I said, I was surprised that the class was that small. And, and they said, yeah, well, that's what it, you know, that's what it turned out to be. I guess there were 11 originally. And then, uh, 
three dropped out in one way or another. But uh, the ones who <laughs> who kept going were all all great and and all showcased perfectly with material that really served them um the ranger material was interesting we had uh music by aarons and flaherty and jason robert brown which is no surprise but then there were also um uh one of the, the girls at one number at one point did a number the number by mirabus duchene that the andrews sisters made famous uh so that was a wonderful throwback and one of the uh other women did the party's over from bells are ringing and then there were you know contemporary stuff and uh, other classic songs so uh, I think the faculty really did them a great service in helping them to choose uh, material that showed them off well. So let me just uh, tell me the name, tell you the names, because I think you will hear from some of these people again. It's Bradley Ford Beatrice, Dija Simone Crumpton. Uh, here's a fabulous stage name, Gabriella Juliet. Mm. Isn't that mm -hmm. wonderful? Um, uh, then we have Marina Rose Macarone, Joey Merendino, El Debel, uh, I'm sorry, Ediberto Ortega, and Jean Schwenk. Uh, so those are the talented, very talented people that I saw from Florida State, and keep your eye out for them. All right. So that wraps it up for this morning. Before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link that we each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Studio. Stitcher plays us, Google Play plays us. Also, there's a new service called Google Podcasts where if you just search for This Week on Broadway in Google, uh, it'll come up with the last uh, three podcasts and you can play it directly from there as well. As, uh, you don't have to subscribe. But do subscribe. Uh, contact information for Peter, for Michael, and me can be found at broadwayradio.com as well as linked to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? In this famous songwriter's fourth produced Broadway musical, a group of characters were known by a collective name. Take away the S at the end of that name, and you'll have the name the main character gave a child in the same writer's fifth produced Broadway musical. What's the name of the group? the musical, as well as the nickname given the kid, and its musical. Well, in Stephen Sondheim's fourth produced Broadway musical, Anyone Can Whistle, a group of inmates from the cookie jar are referred to as cookies. In Sondheim's fifth produced Broadway musical, Do I Hear a Waltz, lead character Leona Samish addresses 10-year-old Morrow, her tour guide by the nickname Cookie. So there you have it. Tony Janicki, yep, who else? I was the first to get it with Jack Leshner following. That was it, though, just two. All right. Well, what is the common de denominator, the other common denominator for those two shows? Oh, Arthur Lawrence. Is that what you mean? Yeah. 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 I always true. thought I always thought he had a thing for the word cookie. But anyway. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. So the new question. A person for whom a Broadway theater is named was born on the street that's specifically mentioned in the 90s stage musical. It played a theater that's named for a much more famous person. So who are the people for whom the theaters are named? What's the name of the street that's mentioned in the show? And for that matter, it's mentioned in a song in the show that you should name as well. Okay, if you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. 
and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Videos this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.